This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is hope, an anchor of assurance. In the first half, Alan R. Harker shares his address, Hope as an Anchor of Our Souls. Then in the second half, Stephen M. Glover speaks on the assurance of things hoped for. I have been associated with seven different universities over the course of my career. In my experience, there is nothing even remotely similar to what we do here today at any of those other institutions. It is remarkable what we do here each Tuesday morning. We share our testimonies, we share our experiences, and I am grateful for all that I have learned from all of you as I have attended devotionals over the last 22 years. What I add today to that library of devotional wisdom is not new. I am acutely aware that I am merely revisiting truths that have been taught by many others with different words, by different means, and through different personal experience. The seeds for my thoughts were planted more than a year ago as we came to the end of a successful family reunion. Even though our children were all grown, we as parents, as their parents, feel some misplaced obligation to be the last flight out, seeing them all off safely. This usually gives my wife and me some extra time to visit more adult attractions while waiting for a later flight. Our preference seems to be for art museums. We chose an art museum not too far from the airport where one of the traveling exhibits happened to be 16th century engravings. My general lack of enthusiasm or appreciation was probably brought on by equal measures of ignorance and fatigue. However, these were tempered by the observation of a theme throughout many of the engravings. Series after series depicted the seven virtues and the seven deadly sins. Almost all contain precisely the same compositional elements derived from Scripture. And here is the first seed that was planted, a representation of hope. There is always a young woman looking longingly towards heaven, perhaps envisioning a brighter future in this life or in the next. There is always the symbolism of the anchor, which is referred to in Scripture in numerous places, but none so directly as in Hebrews 6.19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. I have always been curious about hope, how we obtain it. It's something that we all desire. In Scripture, it's sandwiched between faith and charity, always. And I hope to address, if not answer, some of those questions today. I wish to dismiss rather quickly two worldly notions regarding both hope and anchors. Hope, in the scriptural sense, is not wishing. We use the word far too often in that shallow context and thereby confuse ourselves into believing that hope is a transitory state which can be achieved in times of duress through mere desire or anxious longing. 
This is not the hope that is both sure and steadfast. Neither are anchors dead weight meant to slow us down or impede our progress. The proper use of an anchor is paramount to safety on the water. So now a story about anchors. In October of 2000, my wife and I and two of our three children were living in Christchurch, New Zealand. BYU had provided us with a generous development leave, and we had made our home in a quaint bungalow. Quaint means old, cold, drafty, damp. It was adjacent to the University of Canterbury, where I was working with a colleague who was to become a good friend. We had been there a little over three months when one of New Zealand's fabled storms came roaring in out of the northeast. It smashed into our little neighborhood, flooding the local schools and uprooting trees and sidewalks. We had been so charmed by the garden-like nature of Christchurch that we were distraught at the wreckage around our home. As an aside, those of you who are familiar with Christchurch know that they have in recent years suffered several major earthquakes whose aftermath has unfortunately eclipsed our little experience disaster by orders of magnitude, and our prayers are still with them. During our October storm, however, the most devastating effects were wrought on Littleton Harbor just to the southeast of Christchurch. The marina at Littleton was almost completely destroyed, millions of dollars in damage to boats and infrastructure. As we followed the news reports and developments, I was most intrigued by the stories of those vessels that survived the storm and how their owners had affected that survival. As the storm developed, these experienced men and women were intently watching the barometer and when it began to drop precipitously, they rushed to their boats and headed out to sea. This was entirely counterintuitive to my limited experience. I would have thought that my boat would have been safest in this picturesque harbor tucked in a deep-water inlet in the hollow of an ancient volcano behind a sizable rock jetty, but not so. The boats that left the harbor were among the few vessels that successfully weathered the storm. They went to sea and dropped an anchor, not just any anchor, a storm or a sea anchor. This is clearly not a new invention, although the materials and technology have improved over time. Storm anchors are basically underwater kites or parachutes. There are multiple purposes to this type of anchor. Even in a substantial storm, it prevents the vessel from becoming significantly moved from its initial position. A boat that gets turned sideways in high seas is apt to capsize and founder. This anchor allows the vessel to maintain stable orientation relative to prevailing winds and the predominant waves. The differential movement between the tethered vessel and the underlying waves yields a more responsive rudder, allowing the ship to navigate changes in the oncoming waves. And lastly, the anchor prevents the vessel caught on a very large wave from sliding headlong down and crashing into the next. 
I am sure it is apparent to all of you where my metaphor is taking us. Real hope, based on eternal principles and spiritual experiences, is an anchor to our souls intended and capable of having precisely the same effects. In the storms that will descend on our seemingly safe harbor of home, family, church, and career, real hope grants us stability, affirms our orientation, and allows us to steer through those troubled waters with measured progress. So where do I procure these anchors against the storms of life? I would really like to give them as Christmas presents to my children and grandchildren. Sadly, they cannot be purchased in the way that the world purchases goods and services. Instead, I will share with all of them, my children and grandchildren, and all of you, my favorite scripture. This is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Here, Paul describes the process by which we gain that hope which is real and eternal. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. The first thing that we notice is that this is just a normal learning cycle. I've seen this in my children, in myself, and in most of my students here at BYU. The greatest learning opportunities come in that chaos and confusion of a failed experiment, a clash of ideas, in moments of doubt. It comes in the recognition that we do not know all things, that our preconceived notions are perhaps incorrect and that the acquisition of knowledge is not a matter of memorizing facts and figures. In my learning cycles, personally, patience is always the hardest part. It is the long, hard slog through data, experiencing misguided assumptions and repetitive failures. It is the careful attention to nuance and detail. It is a matter of great and continual effort. And we repeat this cycle over and over and over again, adding to our knowledge, understanding, and confidence. Confidence, by the way, is merely the worldly version of hope. But Paul is not speaking of worldly or secular knowledge here. He is speaking in a spiritual sense, which is clearly taught in the foundation he lays for verses 3 and 4, that I have not yet shared with you. In verses 1 and 2, he gives us a clear understanding of the critical element that makes this not just a worldly endeavor, but a spiritual one. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Paul, speaking spiritually, is affirming that my hope, real hope, that anchor of my soul, both sure and steadfast, is only to be found when it has its genesis in 
in my faith in the Savior. Paul is also telling me something I didn't necessarily want to hear, that the storms in this life are a necessary part of our progression. They represent a progression in our spiritual knowledge and understanding that is just as sure as our acquisition of academic knowledge. The cycle is the same. Why should we think that it would require any less effort? Why do some, or many in our day and age, propose that if God were real, if Christ had been His Son, if the Restoration had been all that important, all of this would be self-evident, rendered to our full vision without effort on our part? That is not how this works in any aspect of our lives. When confronted with tribulation and trials, we rely upon our faith to keep us in the path facing the right direction. We then call upon the Lord for assistance and succor. We wait patiently for the hand of the Lord to be revealed. We recognize promises have been kept, sustained, even when that sustenance comes in a form or time that is remarkably different than we have envisioned, requested, or expected. As we traverse round after round of this spiritual learning cycle, we gain experience in the application of our faith, experience in waiting on the Lord, experience in being obedient, experience in understanding His ways, experience in being blessed, experience in feeling the quiet whisperings of the Spirit, experience in feeling our Savior's love for all of us and all of God's children. In each new experience, we fashion a new anchor of hope that we plant firmly around us. These spiritual anchors have amazing properties that sea anchors do not. They are additive. They can be numerous, and as long as we remember them, they are permanent. They are deployed one by one over a lifetime. They grant stability, direction, safety, and hope—real hope for the future, not only in this life but in the life to come. We all know people, individuals or families, that seem immovable in the face of overwhelming tragedy. They have suffered much, usually with a quiet dignity that belies the tumultuous storms of emotion, disappointment, fear, and grief that may rage beneath the surface. They are amazing. They have been through this spiritual learning cycle over and over again. These are people who have forged the anchors of hope from the materials of experience testimony, covenants, and service. I have often wondered about my personal capacity to weather significant storms. My eternal companion and I have managed to face together most of what life has thrown at us with some degree of grace and persistence. The poverty of being married in school, graduate school, the failed job search, employment that ended prematurely, the family car that caught fire and burned to the ground, chronic health issues, 
a miscarriage. I saw these as difficulties common to all mankind and their solutions perhaps as equally common. My mother-in-law was always of a different mind. She claimed I was the luckiest person in the world because it seemed that all of our trials evaporated over time. Her perspective caught my attention, and I began to be more cognizant of the process by which resolution arrived. I began to see the hand of the Lord in so many aspects of our development as a couple and as a family. I became acutely aware of Paul's cycle of spiritual learning. Still in the back of my mind, I was waiting for the real storm to arrive and wondered if my anchors were sufficient. On July 14th of 2010, a grandson was added to our family. Jonah was born with Treacher Collins syndrome. This is caused by a single dominant mutation, which variably affects late stage craniofacial development. As we learned more about his condition and the surgeries that would be required to restore some of his underdeveloped capacities, I thought that maybe this was the real storm. Despite these difficulties, however, Jonah turned into a brilliant, bright star in our lives. A bone-conducting hearing aid allowed him to hear until the time that a surgery would repair his outer ears. He was bright and generous and kind. Jonah relished all those challenges that faced every other child his age, mainly those of trying to reach those highest of heights. When Jonah was 14 months old, he passed unexpectedly from this life, not from any complication from the surgeries that he had faced or his general condition, but by a random series of events that are commonly avoided by every toddler almost every day of their lives. He inhaled a fruit snack that, despite all valiant and professional effort, could not be cleared from his airway. In the moments after I received the call from my wife that Jonah had died, I sensed the coming storm, the rapid drop in the barometer, and the desperate need to head to sea. It was, however, not my anchors that were to be tested, but those of my daughter and her good husband. For parents, this is almost harder to bear because you are no longer at the tiller. You're not directly engaged in the struggle. Jonah's life and our experiences with him are special and sacred, but not unique. I fully recognize that there are in this room today and amongst those who are listening diverse histories of tribulation that have required you to patiently lean on the Lord, to learn by bittersweet experience, to have hope and eternal promises. Many of these histories enrich our lives as they are shared. Many remain lovingly and carefully conserved deep in our hearts. My daughter chose to process her incredible grief by writing. She wrote honestly, very publicly, and prolifically for over a year about her grief, sorrows, triumphs, and hope. It is no coincidence that we began the devotional today with the hymn, Lord, I Would Follow Thee. This has become one of my favorite hymns and almost the most difficult one for me to sing all the way through. This is because my daughter adopted a line from the second verse as the title of her blog, In the Quiet Heart is Hidden. 
I quote with her permission a good portion of her very first entry because it so poignantly illustrates the elements of Paul's learning cycle, faith, tribulation, patience, experience, and hope. I trust that you will hear each of these elements in her words. It is entitled, The Month Without Jonah. Quote, A month ago I was just like you, going about my life, busy schedules, plans, trying to be a good wife, mother, sister, daughter. I loved being a mom, but occasionally felt overwhelmed by the constant job of motherhood. In a moment, my life, my relationships, my purpose, and my job changed. The moment I knew Jonah was leaving this earth was the moment I felt my faith and everything I believed in being ripped away from me. I questioned everything. I have wept every day since he died, and I wish I could hold him again. As I have cried and prayed and sought answers, I have found some truth and so much comfort. I am not yet at the point where I am grateful for this trial, although I believe that can happen, but I am grateful for what I have learned. I was with Jonah when he died. I watched him choke and struggle and slip away from me. That memory is so vivid that I feel it happening again every time I close my eyes at night. I see it, I feel it, and it causes a rush of adrenaline to flood my body. It has been horrifying each night, and I know this memory is coming. But each night I pray to God to comfort me, to give me peace, and the peace comes like a warm blanket wrapped around me, and I sleep. I prayed that God would help me let go of that memory, and I felt impressed to write it all down, every detail in my journal. I did that yesterday, and last night I laid in bed without my heart and mind racing at peace. I believe that life is full of trials, and none of us will escape hardship or death. I also believe that God is a God of miracles. Almost instantly, I was able to see small miracles in the experience of losing Jonah, but I found myself saying, God, that is not the miracle I wanted. The miracle I wanted was for Jonah to be restored to health, to live. On the surface, it seems that such a miracle would have done more for our faith than this experience of trying to make sense of his death and grieving. Over the past month, as I have studied the scriptures and have thought about this, I have found many examples of people who saw angels or incredible signs from heaven only to doubt them later. I can relate to that. After Jonah's funeral, there was a beautiful rainbow that arched over our home. It instantly felt like a sign to me, almost perfectly biblical, a sign of peace and promise. But I felt myself doubted as well. Perhaps the rainbow was a coincidence simply a natural occurrence. I wanted another sign to back that sign up. I, I can see how relying on signs and miracles becomes an addictive game. On the other hand, the slow and steady work of praying for answers and comfort is a refiner's fire. As I have worked at grieving and understanding, I felt a steady strength that I cannot deny. I cannot say it is a coincidence. I can only say that it is the love of my Heavenly Father, that He sends me comfort and helps me get out of bed each day. I don't understand why this happened, but I know that God loves me 
and is sending me small miracles each day. Sometimes believing is seen. Close quote. I am most grateful that my children have made the necessary effort to forge anchors of their own. Anchors made through years of experience with the Atonement and our Savior's love. My daughter's expressions of desperation and comfort, grief and hope, are universal. They are mirrored perfectly in Paul's exhortation to the Romans. The individual circumstances will change, but we will all experience this spiritual learning cycle over and over again so that we might know the good from the evil, experience joy and sorrow, sickness and health, that we might seek solace in the Atonement offered by our Savior and Redeemer. Our tribulations come in various forms—death, chronic pain, financial hardship, infidelity, divorce, the prodigal child, addiction. The sources are innumerable. But it is precisely the universality of our experiences that allows Paul to foresee the consequences of our faithful and spiritual acquisition of hope. This is found in a subsequent verse that I have likewise withheld. Verse 5. I am going to begin reading from verse 3. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. With our anchors of hope duly deployed, we are prepared to more carefully listen to the promptings of the Spirit. We are prepared through our humble understanding of the Atonement and God's love to offer a reflection of that love to all around us. This is charity, that through our words, actions, and service, the love of God is shed abroad as we proclaim our unashamed testament to the reality of His being, our Father's love for each of His children, and His promise of redemption and eternal life. The Holy Ghost then bears witness to the truthfulness of that unashamed testament. In following this pattern, a new property of spiritual anchors begins to emerge. Each of us begins to share our anchors. Mine become yours, and yours become mine, and we are all strengthened together against the oncoming storm. Inspired prophets, seers, and revelators have urged us to this end from the beginning and still do to this day. Paul's words are perfectly summarized by Nephi. Press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Paul has so simply and eloquently instructed us in the process by which faith, hope, and charity are linked inexorably to our eternal progression and well-being. May we each embrace the storms in our life, having faith in our experience with that one anchor, sure and steadfast, even Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. This is my prayer in His holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center, 
Our theme today is hope, an anchor of assurance. We've just heard from Alan R. Harker. After the break, we'll return with Stephen M. Glover for the assurance of things hoped for. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is hope, an anchor of assurance. Next is Stephen M. Glover, a professor in the BYU School of Accountancy and associate dean of the BYU Marriott School of Management at the time of this address, titled The Assurance of Things Hoped For. When I received the invitation to speak at devotional, I thought back on how devotionals have been an important part of my life for more than 30 years. One of the first devotionals I remember was when I was a freshman at the school formerly known as Rick's College. I was raised in a faithful LDS home, but I was determined to strengthen my personal testimony of the restored gospel before I served a full-time mission. At age 18, I had another gospel-related concern. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. And most of my friends, coaches, neighbors, teachers were not members of the church. And using my developing powers of observation, I noticed that many of these people were happy. They were uh, interesting characters with a healthy sense of humor. And my concern, and probably none of you have this, is that at that time, my limited observation of senior church leaders was that they were quite formal and proper. As a young man, I had this nagging question, would the highest degree of heaven be a very nice but humorless place? The devotional speaker in January 1982 was the oldest living apostle at the time, 95-year-old Legrand Richards. Legrand was seven years old in 1893, and he was in attendance when President Wilfred Woodruff dedicated the Salt Lake Temple. Elder Richards rarely delivered a message from written text. He spoke from a lifetime of experience, study, and inspiration. I found uh, his talk, the 1982 devotional talk, and I want to play just a minute of his remarks so you can get a sense for Elder Legrand Richards. At this point in his talk, he's talking about attending a Sunday school conference as a young boy. The conference was taught by brothers Carl G. Mazur and George Goddard of the General Sunday School Presidency. And I can remember to this day, and it's been over 80 years, the songs that Brother Garter taught us to sing in that Sunday school conference. And when I didn't know I couldn't sing, I tried to sing with them. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> the first song goes like this. Take away the whiskey, the coffee, and the tea. Cold water is the drink for me. And then it repeats and goes on. <laughs> That made such an impression upon me as a boy, I've hardly been able to drink anything but cold water since that time. I was riding on the train a few years back when we used to travel by train headed for California. And I went in the diner in the morning for breakfast and the waiter said, Are you ready for your coffee? No, thank you. Would you like some tea? No, thank you. Will you have some postum? No, thank you. Would you like a glass of milk? No, thank you. What do you want to drink? I said, a glass of cold water, please. He said, you're the funniest man I ever did see. 
Elder Richards was a man of wit and good humor, and my concerns about fitting in with people who qualified to return to our Heavenly Father just simply faded away that day. More importantly, as I listened to Elder Richards speak from his heart and I heard his testimony, it deepened my faith in the Restoration. He was a man of unwavering conviction in the truthfulness of the Gospel. Here's a typical Elder Richards statement. I truly love the work more than anything else in the world, and I know it to be true. I could live better without the limbs of my body than I could without the testimony of the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of the Lord. The fact that Elder Richards had a personal connection to President Wilfred Woodruff, who was a member of Zion's camp, and to his great-uncle Willard Richards, who was in Carthage jail with Joseph and Hiram Smith, made the restoration of the gospel all that more real to me. That day I stood in a long line to shake Elder Richard's hand, and I consider that day in the increased faith and testimony a tender mercy in my life. I had no doubt that Elder Richards knew the Church to be true, but I, like you, would have to continue to build my testimony line upon line, precept after precept. After my mission, I attended BYU Provo for a semester and would have earned a degree here if it were not for a certain special young lady who would later become my wife. Tina was a flight attendant based out of Seattle, so after we were married, I transferred to the University of Washington to finish my degree. I had an experience in one of my first classes at the University of Washington that was interesting. It was a large general education class, and the professor was obviously very smart and accomplished. He and a graduate teaching assistant had an exchange during the class where it seemed to me that they were criticizing religion. I went up after class, and based on my now improving powers of observation, I say to the professor, seems to me you're criticizing people with religious beliefs. As an aside, do you know what the famous baseball player Yogi Berra says about observation? He says, you can observe a lot by watching. So I say to the professor, it looks like you're criticizing religious beliefs. I don't remember much from the class, but I do remember his response that day. He said, yes. We find that the more education people get, the less they need the crutch of religion. But it sounds a lot like a warning in the Book of Mormon. Oh, that cunning plan of the evil one. Oh, the vainness and frailties and foolishness of men. When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore, their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish. I've met people who are once active members of the Church, and as they obtain additional knowledge, they set religion aside. However, we know that education and learning are not inherently bad. In the next verse, in Second Nephi, it states, But to be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God. After completing my undergraduate degree, I worked in Seattle for a few years and then returned to the university to pursue a Ph.D. In graduate school, I was trained in the scientific method, which is a rigorous and careful approach to gaining knowledge. Now, my professional specialty involves the procedure of techniques used by professional accountants to evaluate the fairness of financial statement information. Financial statements tell the story of performance of the company and management. Now, I don't know about you, but when I started talking about accounting, there's a spike in energy in the room. And most of it may have come from this row right here of accounting professors. <clears throat> so professional accountants verify the fairness of what management reports by gathering and evaluating relevant and reliable information. They gather enough information to provide a high degree of assurance that the statements are fair. I'm going to come back to that word assurance a little later. So this method of obtaining knowledge, like the scientific method, is similar to much of your academic work. 
In an excellent speech delivered by former BYU President Rex Lee, he calls this method of knowing the rational process. He said, The rational process is one that you are accustomed to using in your academic work. Its tools should be familiar to all of you, reading, analysis, research, criticism, and generally problem resolution by thoughtful inquiry. Properly applied is a strenuous, taxing, and frequently frustrating experience that results in the strengthening of our ability to use these processes. Through your past and present academic efforts, you're becoming increasingly expert in acquiring knowledge using the rational method. And our church leaders have repeatedly reminded us of the importance of this method. Modern day revelation emphasizes that we are to seek learning by study and also by faith and wisdom out of the best books. There's another method of knowing, and President Lee called it the extra-rational process, which comes through contact with godly things and revelation. President Lee said, extra-rational learning takes a great variety of forms. The methods are not the same as the rational process. The results are much surer, though they are not as susceptible to our own control. It is this extra-rational process that I want to explore further with you today. President Lee noted that there's a tendency for those who become strong in rational processes to downplay the importance of extra-rational. Perhaps people believe that being excellent in rational processes can compensate for being weak in extra-rational processes. In the Bible Dictionary it states, Knowledge of divine and spiritual things is absolutely essential for one's salvation. Knowledge is not obtained all at once, even by revelation, but line upon line, precept upon precept. I have observed people who fall away from the gospel, and at least one of the reasons seems to be that their rational skills are stronger than their extra-rational skills. One young person who has distanced himself from the church said he recognizes the many good aspects of the church and the gospel, but he currently doesn't see a need for organized religion. Another who's been out of the church for several years said he wouldn't be surprised if someday he returned to the church, he was just waiting for the right feeling that he should return. These comments seem to reflect a misunderstanding of the important elements of extra-rational processes. In Hebrews 11, we read, Now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you look at the Joseph Smith translation of this verse, it reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So there's that word assurance. Recall that for professional accountants obtaining a high degree of assurance, involves a systematic process of gathering and evaluating evidence. Now, I realize there's just a small chance that when you read the word assurance, you don't initially or automatically link it to the work of professional accountants. Um, my daughters who are here will tell you that not all accountants are boring, but they can get excited about seemingly boring things. <laughs> so faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Is there a systematic way to apply extra-rational processes to obtain a high degree of assurance for things hoped for? And if we follow a process like that, could we attain the level of assurance that someone like Leran Richards had? A number of years ago, our family moved to the beautiful little township of Basking Ridge, New Jersey. I was on a two-year professional development leave from BYU while I worked for a large firm headquartered in New York City. Our neighbor, who was a town historian, uh, was quite surprised to learn that we'd be driving 25 minutes to a Mormon church when our township had three perfectly good, beautiful, historic Christian churches. A couple of weeks after being in our new ward, the bishop extended a home teaching assignment to me to visit John and Nancy Ferderber. 
John was a retired business executive, and he looked to me like he was a former bishop. I was surprised to learn that John was not a member of the church. His wife and children had, were members, and John had been very supportive of his children's involvement in church, their missions, temple marriages. John attended sacrament meeting with Nancy and had always been supportive of youth and scouting midweek activities. John shared his enthusiasm for sports with the youth. He was a longtime young women's basketball coach. He was particularly skilled at starting with beehives and through instructions and practice uh, turning them into ball players. John described himself as a dry Mormon. He said he always felt welcomed by the members, but he had difficulty accepting all that went along with being a Mormon. I remember our early home teaching visits with John and Nancy. John was quite interested in the business reasons for our move to New Jersey. I explained that when we came for home teaching visits, we would visit, catch up, and then we would deliver a brief gospel message. John agreed. <clears throat> However, I quickly learned that John knew the home teaching drill very well. One time, apparently my lesson wasn't short enough, and John just turned to my young companion and said, How about that closing prayer? Uh, <clears throat> that meant John had had enough for the day. Uh, as we taught lessons of the Restoration, I'd ask John, John, what are your religious beliefs? And he'd say, Steve, I'll tell you. I was baptized Catholic. I wasn't all that religious as a younger man, and now I choose to attend the Mormon Church. And then quickly said, so you see, Steve, I've already been baptized. And I smiled and reminded John that we believed he would need to be baptized again by one holding the priesthood. To which John said, I understand, maybe one of these days I'll take care of that. Nancy, who'd never given up hope, hears that, looks over and says, what do you mean, one of these days? You're not getting any younger. A year or so went by, <clears throat> during which time the full-time missionaries stopped in to check on John, and they reported back to me, he is the nicest man, but not yet ready to accept the gospel. John kept attending sacrament meeting and accepting our home teaching visits, and as so long as I was good-natured, he let me uh, talk about how someday he'd be joining the church. Then John had a very serious health challenge that required surgeries. I remember after giving him a blessing in the hospital, John told us that he'd been impressed that this life is a time to carefully and seriously consider the things of heaven. He told me if he made it through the surgery, he would commit to retake the missionary lessons. After surgery, he said he felt watched over and realized he had been granted another chance. There were health complications and months of recovery, and all through it, John's heart continued to soften. The prayers of his wife, children, grandchildren, and ward members, and loved ones were heard. And he started to openly talk about the possibility and even the likelihood of being baptized. Our two-year leave from BYU came to a close, and we returned uh, to Provo. But we told John that, and John was still several months away from being baptized because of his health, uh, we promised John that we would travel back to New Jersey for his baptism. When he was ready, John walked up to the full-time missionaries that following October and asked them what he needed to do to be baptized in early November. It was a beautiful service. Imagine the scene as John entered the baptismal font. There was this large group of loved ones, Nancy, the children, all these grandchildren. Every time they got baptized, they'd say, Grandpa, you want to get baptized with me? They'd prayed for so many years uh, for this. When John came up out of the water, he smiled, and then he raised his hands. And spontaneously went out this loud cheer from all these beautiful grandchildren. Uh, it's the first and only time I've attended a baptism with such a loud and joyous cheer. But under the circumstances, it was totally appropriate. John said that he's so pleased to fulfill a promise and Nancy's patriarchal blessing that she would be married to an elder in the church. 
Together they've served as workers in the Manhattan Temple, and they've served two church service missions. And we're honored that John and Nancy are here with us today. We could have John give one of these. <clears throat> there you go. So what lessons do we learn from John about gaining assurance from extra-rational processes? We certainly see the power of a loving and faithful wife and family who offered countless prayers on John's behalf. John also always felt welcomed by the saints. Alma in the Book of Mormon teaches that the extra-rational process often begins with a humble and basic desire to believe. As the Word of God, like a seed, is planted in our hearts, it begins to swell, provides enlightenment, and enlarges the soul. John was humble. He had desire. He acted upon his spiritual promptings. I remember talking to John on the phone in the weeks following his baptism. He was learning so much about the gospel. He was surprised and a little nervous that he would be invited to teach the priesthood lesson. What was clear is that even though John had sat through hundreds of sacrament meeting talks, without the benefit of the gift of the Holy Ghost, he hadn't retained much of that teaching. So to apply extra-rational processes, we must have a sincere and humble desire to gain knowledge. We must act in response to spiritual promptings. And the Holy Ghost is a great facilitator of obtaining assurance of spiritual things. If we ever find ourselves just going through the motions of attending Sunday meetings or offering prayer without sincere and heartfelt desire, we need to recognize that this is not an effective application of our extra-rational processes. As a teenager, David O. McKay desired to obtain his own witness of the truth. He describes riding his horse into the hills and finding a secluded place to offer a prayer asking God for a testimony of the gospel. He fully expected he'd receive a manifestation that would remove all of his doubts. After uh, the prayer was done, he was writing home, and he asked himself what had changed. He said, quote, No, sir, there is no change. I am just the same boy I was before I knelt down. Close quote. The anticipated manifestation had not come. Even though he did not immediately receive a manifestation that he expected, he continued to apply extra-rational processes by humbly seeking with sincere desire and choosing to live a righteous life. He said, The spiritual manifestation for which I had prayed as a boy in my teens came as a natural sequence to the performance of duty. Answers to our prayers may not always come in an immediate and direct response to prayer or to time and a manner we anticipate, but they do come as we continue to do the will of God and they come in a time and a manner that is in our best interest. My great-great-grandfather, Morris David Rosenbaum, was born in Germany in 1831 to a Jewish family. At 11 years old, uh, Morris asked the rabbi where there are no more prophets or temples. And the rabbi explained those things were no longer needed, as the Old Testament was complete and contained all the necessary patterns. At age 19, Morris traveled to New York City for business, and some years later he traveled to San Francisco. In his travels, he heard about a Mormon settlement, and he was impressed to visit them. His religious discussions with the Mormon settlers made little impression on him, although he records in his journal the Mormons were the best people he had come into contact with. Morris applied an important principle of obtaining assurance of things hoped for when he described the Mormons as the best people he had come into contact with. He'd recognized the fruits of the gospel. The Savior taught, Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. As you apply your extra-rational processes, use your powers of observation 
to look around and examine the fruits of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his restored church. Do you see the blessings that can be in people's lives and in their families? Do you see the peace and joy that comes under any circumstances to those who faithfully live the gospel? I know that I have. When the Settlement of Mormon relocated to Utah, Morris decided to travel with them and spend the winter in Utah. Then he planned to return to Germany. In Salt Lake City, he heard Heber C. Kimball speak, and he recorded in his journal that it seemed to him he had heard the sermon before because he could anticipate what Brother Kimball was going to say. Morris then met Brother Neibauer, a member of the church who was from Germany and also of Jewish descent. Morris and Brother Neibauer had several discussions about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and at first Morris could not believe the teachings because they were so different from the teachings of his childhood. Little by little, he became more interested, and he said a peaceful, teachable spirit fell upon him. However, it's interesting what he records in his journal next. He said, When I listened to my selfish thoughts, it seemed to me I was deceived. I hated Mormonism and regretted ever hearing it. Morris describes selfish thoughts, perhaps because he knew the likely reaction from his parents if he were to join the church. As we use our extra-rational processes to gather assurance of things hoped for, will we encounter selfish or doubting thoughts? And the answer is absolutely. We know, particularly in these latter days, gospel principles will be attacked, and those attacks may come through seemingly rational arguments. When our beliefs are challenged, we have the opportunity to choose the peace and protection that comes through faith. Faith, though, is not a free gift. The Savior describes actions when he invites us, Come unto me, or knock, and it shall be given you. President Thomas S. Monson has said, Remember that doubt and faith cannot exist in the mind at the same time, for one will dispel the other. Whereas doubt destroys, faith fulfills. When Morris examined the fruits of his thought, he noticed that whenever he determined to have nothing more to do with Mormonism, he felt darkness. But when he studied the Book of Mormon and went to meetings, he felt surrounded by a peaceful influence and felt that he was being instructed the principles of the gospel by an unseen power. Morris records in his journal that one time after Brother Nybauer bore his testimony of the gospel, Morris said, Mr. Nybauer, why cannot I have such a testimony? Brother Nybauer replied, Mr. Rosenbaum, I promise you in the name of Israel's God you will. If you obey the principles of the gospel, repent, and be baptized for the remission of sins, then prayerfully ask Heavenly Father for it. Morris longed for such, and a few days after chose to be baptized and confirmed a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Brigham Young later sealed Morris and his wife in the Salt Lake Temple, and several years later Morris served a mission to Germany. By the way, my grandfather Glover was also named Morris, and my middle name is Morris. We learn important principles about applying extra-rational processes from my great-great-grandfather's story. We must repent and be obedient. We must often take action before receiving the desired witness. Morris also read the Book of Mormon from cover to cover and had a strong conviction that the book was written by inspiration. It is said that when we wish to communicate with God, we do so through prayer. When God wishes to communicate with us, it is often through the scriptures. Our son is currently serving a full-time mission in Melbourne, Australia. Now, we say Melbourne, but I have on good authority it's Melbourne. Uh, our son has worked with people who have sought baptism after they found answers to important questions while studying the Book of Mormon. We learn in Alma 37 that the scriptures are our own personal liahona. My experience is, 
it doesn't matter so much where in the scriptures we are reading and pondering. The act of studying and pondering opens the windows of heaven. Using my now keen powers of observation, I can tell you that the assurance you do obtain through extra-rational processes can and will fade if you get lax in your church attendance and personal prayer and scripture study. In Amma 32, we read that even if the seed is good and grows into a tree that produces good fruit, if we neglect the tree, it will wither away. It withers not because the seed wasn't good or the fruit not delicious, but because of neglect and lack of nourishment. I testify that by the proper application of extra-rational processes, there's a systematic way to leading to a high degree of assurance for things hoped for, even knowledge and surety of divine and spiritual things. I will close with a promise from our beloved prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, who in a BYU devotional taught, To those who humbly seek, there is no need to stumble or falter along the pathway leading to truth. It is well marked by our Heavenly Father. We must first have a desire to know for ourselves. We must study. We must pray. We must do the will of the Father. And then we will know the truth, and the truth will make us free. Divine favor will attend those who humbly seek it. That is a promise which I leave with you. Think of it. Close quote. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Hope, an Anchor of Assurance, with thoughts from Alan R. Harker and Stephen M. Glover. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.